Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, everybody. How we doing? Uh, If you have any degree of ambition, one of the things you probably think about is how to perform at your best or somewhere close every day. How to keep your energy up, how to get into flow, how to stay focused and productive, how to play well with others, etc. Daniel Goleman, his friends, and I consider myself one of them, call him Danny, has been thinking and writing about optimal performance for decades. He is perhaps best known for his book, Emotional Intelligence. He's a Harvard-trained psychologist who also wrote for the New York Times for many years. And in his youth, he spent many years studying meditation in Asia alongside many of today's best-known meditation teachers like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. Danny has a new book called Optimal, How to Sustain Personal and Organizational Excellence Every Day, co-written with Carrie Chernus. In this conversation, we talk about how to train your mind for optimal states, how to reduce burnout, how to develop and deploy empathy in a work setting, how to give feedback. We talk about a productivity hack that involves only doing the easy stuff. We talk about the four parts of emotional intelligence and how to get better at each. And the future of EI in a world of AI. This episode kicks off the latest installment of an occasional series we do here on the show called Sanely Ambitious. Over the next two weeks, we will be posting episodes on how to focus in the midst of a pandemic of distraction, how to fail well. I found that very interesting. And I also found this interesting, when to quit. It's a great lineup of guests. Many of the nuggets from these interviews have already worked their way into my daily routine. Danny Goldman kicks it off, and he's coming up right after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. 
My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on Wallet Happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Daniel Goldman, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Dan Harris. So the new book is called Optimal. What, What do you mean by that? Well, optimal, I mean it in the sense of being at our best, having a day that we consider, wow, that was a good day, feeling good about it being productive by whatever standard makes sense for you, feeling connected with whoever you're working with, all of those things. That makes it optimal, I think. And you're, you're basically talking about an optimal life. Exactly. So when you say you could extend it, you're mostly thinking in this book about professional life and the health of an organization, but one could extend it to all of life. Optimal applies to any domain of our lives, any domain. Actually, when I used Optimal, I was using a database that was collected at Harvard Business School when they asked people to keep a journal of their workday. That's why I think about work. But Dan, your point is well taken. Let's stay with work for a second. When you talked about being productive (laughs) and you did very helpfully added by whatever standard you set. I think productivity is an area where a lot of us suffer quite a bit. We beat the shit out of ourselves about not being productive enough. There's a great phrase that was coined by one of my fellow podcasters, Jocelyn K. Gly. She's got a podcast called Hurry Slowly, and I'll put a link in the show notes of her interview on this podcast. And she has a great phrase, which is productivity shame, which I think a lot of us feel a shame. I know I do about not being productive enough I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I sure do. I think that too many of us are perfectionists. We hold a high internal standard and judge ourselves against it, particularly people who are very successful. Perfectionists tend to drive themselves harder than anyone else, but they have a certain cognitive bias, which I think is really harmful, and that is they see what they did wrong, not what they did right. Hmm. They see what where they can improve, which is helpful, but they don't see what they did really well. So what I'm saying with optimal is, hey, you know what? Relax a little. Maybe lower your standards. Don't be so self-judgmental. You're doing things really well. Notice that. Applaud that. And when I say productive by any standard, I mean it works. It might be folding the laundry. It might be getting the kids to school on time. It might be, you know, managing a carpool working out. It it could be something at home. It could be something at work. It could be doing computer code. It's the same thing. Is it good enough? By Well, by whose standard? If you're a little perfectionist, it's going to be too high a standard. That's what I think. I think the question 
a lot of people would have when they hear you talk about perfectionism and the perfectionist tends to focus on what's mm. what they did wrong, not what they did right. I think a lot of perfectionists, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying this with any judgment because I am one, would say, well, what has allowed me to succeed is that I so viciously focus on what I did wrong. Well, another way to say that, you focus on how where you can improve, right? When you say, here's what I did wrong, that implies, well, I could do it right another time. I could do it righter, so to speak. <laughs> but you could be more relaxed about the same thing. You could say, oh, well, I blew that. But, you know, maybe I can practice it. Maybe I can get better at it. Maybe there's something I can learn. I think that a lot of perfectionism goes back to childhood and conditional love. There's research that says preschool kids are very compassionate, very kind to each other. Once they enter school, they drop that. They become very competitive. You want to be like the smartest kid in your class. And parents, when you come home, don't say, uh, who were you kind to today? They say, how'd you do on the test? In other words, we learn through countless small encounters as kids to beat ourselves up if we don't do better, particularly kids who are toward the top of a game. And in school, the game is academics. Mm. So I think that the culture shapes us to be perfectionists, and it rewards perfectionists. You're right. People who are the best at X are people who drove themselves. And in a way, that's very laudable. But the question is, did they beat themselves up in the process? Or did they do it in a way where they had fun? And and I think another question is, does the beating yourself up and the driving yourself so hard actually help? You think it does, but does it really help? I'm just going to let that question hang there. <laughs> I once heard somebody ask our mutual friend, Joseph Goldstein, the, the meditation teacher, yeah. on a meditation retreat. Beethoven was so miserably unhappy. If he wasn't, he probably wouldn't have made such great art. And Joseph was like, how do you know? Maybe if he was happier, he, he would have made even better art. <laughs> exactly. And in, in fact, there's some data that suggests that when people are in a positive mood, they're more creative. It may be that Beethoven was so fabulous in spite of himself. I don't know if he was a perfectionist or not. I have no idea. But, you know, let's look at someone like Mozart, at least the way he's depicted. He was having a good time, and he was fantastic. Hmm. So the move here for us perfectionists, to harken back to something you said earlier, is instead of being hypervigilant for our mistakes— and framing them as mistakes, things that went wrong, to reframe it as areas for improvement. Exactly. You know, in the book, I say, uh, thinking about that one time you were in flow when you outdid yourself and you were so fabulous at whatever it was, that's too high a standard. That's mm. like you can't make that happen. It just happens. You can't let that be the standard for your performance. Mm. You need to relax a bit and say... You know, having a good day, a day when I'm satisfied with how I did, that's what I call optimal day. And I think that's good enough, particularly if you have day after day like that.
What is the difference? You, you referenced flow. Some people might not know what flow is. Mm. Could you just define it and maybe also provide some delineation between flow and, you know, optimality? Sure. The flow research was done at the University of Chicago, headed by a guy named Chixit Mahai. It's unspellable. Uh, it's a Czech name. We used to call him Chick, actually, for short. <laughs> anyway, his researchers would ask people, tell us about a time you outdid yourself. You're at your absolute best. And uh, they found that it didn't matter if it was a basketball player or a ballerina or a surgeon. Phenomenologically, it was the same state underneath whatever it was they were doing, whatever performance was involved. It was a state where they were very focused where they felt really good about what they did, when they lost all self-consciousness, you know, thoughts of I, me, and mine, not there. Where time seemed to collapse or lengthen, it was an altered state of consciousness. And they did their best at whatever they were. And in optimal, what we're arguing is that, you know, it's great to be in flow, but you can't make it happen. Optimal is... What's just beneath that, you know, the 70 or 80% of the time or whatever percent of the time when you do a really good job and you should congratulate yourself, celebrate it because it, you were very productive at whatever it is you're trying to do. And by the way, we see focus, concentration as a doorway into that. The more focused you are on what you're doing, the better you'll do it, whatever it is. And by the way, uh, mindfulness of the breath is one of the ways to develop that kind of focus. In other words, meditation is an attentional workout. And that's definitely a pathway to probably letting optimal states occur more often. Hmm. The more we can tune our brains and our minds to pay attention, to be awake, to be out of autopilot, the more likely we will be to have optimal days. And maybe, even though we can't really control it, reach flow states once in a while. Correct. Well said. So... Let me just amplify that a little bit, Dan, by saying that what keeps us out of those states are our usual state of mind, distractedness. You know, if you watch your mind, and this happens a lot when you start to meditate, you see how scattered you are, how random thoughts come, how random impulses come. It's just part of the flow, the ongoing flow of the reality we create for ourselves. But if you learn to tune out of that and focus on the present, on what you're doing, then you overcome the usual state of mind. And as you know, in, in the meditative pathways, that can lead to uh, absorptive states, to states where you don't have any other thoughts other than what you're focusing on, which is a state that's said to have a lot of equanimity and pleasure, a lot of bliss, actually. So I would say the more focused we are, the more likely we're going to be in that optimal state, whatever we're doing. And that, in fact, there are methods of mind training, which will get you there more often. What are those methods? I'd say one-pointedness, however you do that. Uh, often it's just focusing on the breath 
And when you start to focus on your breath, you realize how distracted we are so much of the time. It, I mean, I'd have to ask someone who was maybe a little fidgety about it or a little skeptical about it, but <laughs> I know that fidgety skeptics seem to think that meditation can be very hard, and it can be at first, but actually it's like learning any new skill. The more you practice it, the easier it gets. Are there other forms of mind training that can help us nudge us toward an optimal state? I know that in sports, for example, a lot of coaches will use some functional equivalent of meditating on your breath. Like a pitcher, just focus on the mitt, the catcher's mitt. That's the same thing. Hmm. You're just using the mitt as the point of focus. Yeah, I mean, the people, I mean, it's it's possible for there to be, then there certainly are many esoteric forms of meditation that are that do involve lots of rituals and special training but really at at its core meditation to the extent that i understand it is about focusing on one thing and then every time you get distracted start again and again so a catcher's mitt is in this way just as good as your breath as it is a visualization of some deity as it is a mantra repeated in the mind it's all just the same. It's all different flavors of the same exercise. And the exercise is letting go of distractions and bringing your mind back every time mm -hmm. you notice that you wandered off. And by the way, that's called mindfulness, noticing when you're distracted and bringing your mind back. But when you bring your mind back, you're practicing that full focus. Yes. Cannot say that enough. I've come to see this kind of as my job on the planet because so many people think they cannot meditate that they're bad meditators. And mm -hmm. I'm here to say, if you think you're a bad meditator, that means you're doing it right because, or probably doing it right, because the whole goal is to sit there and have this humiliating experience of seeing how wild your mind is and, you know, waking up from distraction over and over sure. and returning sure. to the breath. And, and in that way, you get less, first of all, you, you're training the brain to be less distracted. And second, you're becoming familiar with how the mind works so that all of your random thoughts, urges, and emotions don't own you. And the more you do it, the easier it gets, as with any skill. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is practicing a mental skill. And at first, it seems impossible. You're right. Because the mind is, you know, we've spent years and years in distracted mind. That's the way it's used to working. So when we start to try to keep it in one place... We notice how distracted it's are. That doesn't need to be humiliating. Uh, that's maybe a judgment of yourself. It can just be, the, oh, that's how the mind works. Yes, yes, you're right. Absolutely. Just my description of it. I'm attempting to be funny and in the process being glib, which is not so helpful. I mean, it, it, it can be humiliating if you're doing, if you're judging it, but you can see the judging too. Anything can oh, be. Oh, beautiful. Because that's just another thought. Oh, yes. I'm thinking it's humiliating. Yes. Exactly. Back to the breath. That just means you're distracted. Yeah. So so in the book, there are four parts, and each part is helping us get closer to having an optimal workday and an optimally functioning organization. Part one is called The Emotional Intelligence Path to Optimal Performance. You've been on the show many times. You've defined emotional intelligence for us many times. May I ask you to do it again because I think it will help with the rest of this conversation. Of course. So emotional intelligence has four parts, the way I see it. The first is self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling, 
why you're feeling it, how it shapes your perceptions and your way of thinking and your impulse to act. The second part is managing your emotions in a way that works for you. So you might want to calm disturbing emotions, things that upset you. You might want to stay more positive. You might want to be flexible instead of rigid. You might want to be uh, able to recover. You know, we don't determine what we're going to feel. Emotions come unbidden. But once we feel it, once we get angry, once we get anxious, we have a golden opportunity, and that is to let go of it, to recover. The operational definition of resilience in psychology is how quickly you go from the peak of upset to back to calm baseline. Uh, the, and turns out, for example, the longer you've been a meditator, the quicker that recovery will be. Mm. Uh, but it's probably true of any kind of training uh, where you let go of distractions. Then the third part is empathy, tuning into other people and noticing what they feel, how they're thinking, and caring about them. I think that's really crucial, particularly for leadership, for parenthood, for friendship. It's not enough to know, oh, he's upset now. The question is, do you care that that person is upset and do you want to help that person get into a better state? And then the fourth part is relationship, social skill, being adept, being connected, influencing people in, in a good way toward their better selves, helping other people get into the optimal state, inspiring them to, toward some greater goal is, is part of that sometimes, resolving conflicts in a way where it's like a good enough compromise. If you have two people who are at odds, it's never one or the other. It's got somewhere in between is where you want to be. And then being a team member, working with other people in a harmonious way, you know, turns out this is ironic. At Google, they discovered that the higher the IQ of group members, that doesn't predict a team's output or performance. Uh, what does is their sense of psychological safety, which is what emotional intelligence helps you promote. Uh, and that's a key to an optimal performance as a team. And then putting that all together, like if you have, if you're leading an organization, uh, I would say don't try to hire people who are emotionally intelligent. It's very hard because people put on their best face when they're trying to get hired. It's better to offer people ways to get better. And, you know, for example, emotional intelligence training that works, a lot of it doesn't. And also to let it be known that it matters here. Like in the performance review, you know, everybody talks about hitting their numbers. But the question is, how did you get those numbers? What kind of team leader were you? Are you the kind that people hate and they want to quit and find a job somewhere else? Or the kind of leader that people love, that people feel supported, guided, cared about, and they'll stay, they're more engaged. So we have a lot of data now to support this. When I wrote the book in 95, Dan, there was very little data about emotional intelligence. It was a brand new concept. Now, 25 years later, my co-author co -author and I, Carrie Chernus, uh, have gathered together the best data on emotional intelligence. And it turns out, guess what? It works. This emotional intelligence sounds great. The four parts, self-awareness, managing your emotions, empathy, social skills or relationship skills? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've got an online training program in what 
we consider the key competencies based in emotional intelligence. This comes from research about what makes someone outstanding at work, a star performer in some sense. And what we found is that you can upgrade all of these. There's skills that can be learned and can be improved. So what are some of the mechanisms and modalities for upgrading these skills? Well, the first thing is to become aware of how a skill operates in your life. Like one of the skills is emotional balance or resilience, recovering from upset. Well, let's start with what triggers you. You know, you can keep a triggering journal and see what got me really bugged, what upset me today. And that helps you get more in touch with what your vulnerable spots are. And then the question is, once you feel that way, what can you do? Once you are triggered, how can you recover? Obsessing about it isn't going to help, but dropping it is going to help. If you can find a way to, for example, just step back from what's happening, be mindful in that moment, it short circuits the upset. What about the social skills part of this? This strikes me as incredible. I mean, I'm writing a book that touches on a lot of this stuff, so it's salient. Uh, it's top of mind for me. And I often think about the fact that we are, it's weird that we're social animals and yet nobody teaches us how to deal with other people. And so what do you recommend for developing empathy and then learning how to deploy it skillfully in a social setting or a work setting? Well, one of the interesting things about empathy is that we rarely get any feedback on whether the assumptions we make about what someone else is feeling or thinking is correct. So one of the first steps is to get that feedback, to ask for it. You know, I, I, it seems to me you're feeling X. Is that right or not? I mean, that's a rudimentary way to develop empathy. But what it does is tell your brain whether it was accurate or not. And then when it comes to social skills, let's say, let's take teamwork. This is a really interesting one. It turns out that emotional intelligence operates at the team level, at the group level, but it operates by norms, by agreed on ways of interacting. And one of the things that we do, this is based on decades of research by a woman at University of New Hampshire, Vanessa Druscat. She has an assessment where members of a team rate each other on things like, do you talk over other people? Do you listen to people? Are you accurate in your assumptions about people? And they get a kind of a diagnosis of the team, their strong points, their weak points. And then they decide how to fix that. In other words, they agree amongst themselves on what the norm is going to be here. I'll, I'll give you an example of a norm. There's a research lab that has about 3,000 PhDs. And at that lab, the director told me, we have a norm that when somebody offers a new idea, a creative idea, the next person who speaks has to support them, has to be an angel's advocate. It's so easy to destroy an idea and say why it won't work. But that's an idea. A new idea is a fragile bud. Support it. Let's see if it's going to blossom. So that's how that lab operates. He says, I don't know who started that norm, but it's very important here. How do you reinforce a norm? That ideal, which is a creativity consultancy. 
uh, one of the branches, if you break a norm, the, one of the norms there is you don't interrupt other people. You don't talk over other people. Uh, and so if you break that norm, you get pelted with toy animals by other people in the group, which is a fun way of reinforcing a norm. It doesn't have to be a dire thing, like, oh, you broke a norm. You can just point it out. That's all you need to do. On the subject of what are sometimes referred to as soft skills or people skills, I don't like soft skills just because it seems like it's diminishing it. But you write a, a few interesting things about this in your book. Other terms for it include leading teams and people development, executive presence and influencing skills, and relationship management. But it's now something that is seen as crucial at work, just like cognitive abilities. So we are now moving into a world where it's not enough to be smart. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the evidence I cite for that actually is interesting. There's an article in the Harvard Business Review that looked at almost 20 years of ads for people in the top level of management, top leaders. And it showed that over two decades, the uh, demand for soft skills had increased 30% and hard skills went down 40%. And by hard skills, what I mean is cognitive abilities that uh, you would think matter, like business expertise. What companies are seeing and organizations are seeing is that People skills, which I like better than soft skills, emotional intelligence matters more for effective leadership than whether or not you happen to have a history in that particular business. In fact, I have a friend who used to be the head of research for an executive recruitment firm, and he did a study worldwide of times that their company had recommended someone strongly and then that person had been fired, and they want to know why. And what he found out was that um, invariably the people they recommended were hired for hard skills, business expertise, smarts, and fired for a lapse in emotional intelligence. I think, Dan, it might help to understand the, the way both of those matter. I don't think that IQ and cognitive ability doesn't matter, but here's the Here's the paradox. If you go to an organization like Google, where they hire people only in the 99th percentile of IQ, there's what's called the floor effect for IQ. It's not a big differentiator. But there's no particular pressure to hire for emotional intelligence. Mm. So people who have the ability to emerge as a natural leader end up leading teams, end up getting the promotions, end up being the star performers. And this is a really important distinction between threshold abilities, like everybody who has that position needs to have coding expertise or needs to have a certain business background. But what's going to set them apart isn't that, because everybody has those. It's things like, do you tune into people? Do you empathize? Do you build relationships? Do you inspire? Those are the things. Can you manage your own emotions well? That's what's going to distinguish people in the workplace. 
there's a great quote, another great quote from the book right on this point, which is, over the course of your career, IQ's predictive power for success wanes. Why? Because the smartest person in the room can be an interpersonal idiot. And, you know, I've, I've seen it over, I've been that guy. I've been, I don't know if I'm the smartest person in the room, but I've been a reasonably smart person in the room and a total idiot. Exactly. And I, I doubt that you were, but I'll take your word for it. But we've all known interpersonal idiots head in the workplace, they often get promoted, and sometimes they're promoted because they're perfectionists. For example, you might be a star individual performer and get promoted to the head of a team or of a unit in a business or in an organization. But then if you're an interpersonal idiot, people aren't going to love working for you. People are going to actually want to go somewhere else. People tend to leave bad bosses and interpersonal idiots are that. The quote that I just read comes from a book where you're discussing a 360 review. For people listening who've never heard of a 360 review, it is, it's basically an anonymous survey that is run within a workplace usually where an executive or somebody in the workplace, that person's Bosses, peers, and direct reports are surveyed, again, anonymously and given feedback on this, on the person's strengths and weaknesses. I've had, I've, you know, talked ad nauseum about my own 360 reviews, which have been hard. What's your view on this tool? Is this something that everybody should consider doing? I don't know that everyone should consider doing it. I think if you're motivated to get better, in some sense, it can be helpful but it shouldn't be seen as a judgment. It should be seen as information to use. I actually co-designed a 360. It's called the Emotional and Social Competence Inventory. Uh, I designed it with a friend of mine from my uh, graduate school days, Richard Boyatzis, who now teaches at uh, the uh, School of Management at Case Western. And it uh, assesses people systematically on behaviors that demonstrate these crucial competencies. And you may find that you're really, other people's, let me emphasize something you said, Dan. People fill this out anonymously. You get to select who the 10 people are who are going to rate you, people sure. whose opinions you trust, but you won't know what they said about you. You get the data as an aggregate. So you get a profile. It's like a physical, you know, how's your lipids? How's your HDL? And so on. If you, uh, so how's your empathy? How's your teamwork? How's your managing emotions as other people see you day to day? And that gives you a diagnostic, but it's, the worst way to use that is to say, well, you suck at this and this, because that's very demotivating and demoralizing. The best way to get it is, well, let's think about where you want to be in five years your ideal self, where do you want to, where are you going in life? And what of these abilities would help you get there? Mm -hmm. And is there, does this show that you could get better at one of those? Pick one and then come up with a learning plan that will help you remember, like be a better listener. This is a big one. I know you've worked with our mutual friends, Dan Clearman and, and Medita Nisker on communication skills. And one of the big ones is listening. But the common cold of poor leadership, poor management, and poor friendship is not listening. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. In other words, we're thinking about what we're going to say or we talk over someone, you know, in the doctor's office. This was an actual study. People in the waiting room are asked, how many questions do you have your doctor? Four on average. You ask afterwards, how many did you ask? One and a half. What happened? <laughs> After 18 seconds, the doctor took over the conversation and I didn't have a chance to ask the rest. Well, that's life. That's what happens. But what it takes to learn to listen better is to listen to the other person out, to restrain yourself, listen to what they think, maybe say it back to them in your own words. Did I get it right? And then say what you think. That's like, that's major. And why is it major? Because A, it makes the other person feel listened, heard, and cared about. And B, what you're doing is retraining your brain. You're getting your brain to stop doing the knee-jerk thing of like interrupting the person taking over and hearing them out and then saying what you think. That takes advantage of neuroplasticity, that the brain changes with repeated sequences. This is just the way the brain works. So the more you do it, the better you get at it until you do it automatically without thinking about it, which means it's become a new habit. And you need to practice and practice at every naturally occurring opportunity, which, by the way, may not be at work, may be with your spouse, with your partner, with your kids, could be with anyone else. Just to put a fine point on that, if because we've all heard, you know, listening skills are really important. What specific technique would you recommend for people to become better listeners? Uh, I think that the main path to listening better is focusing on the other person instead of on what we're going to say in return. That's what you're able to do if you listen to the person out. At least you have the space, the opportunity to do it. The question is, do you focus on the other person or just on your own thoughts about how I'm going to react? So can you make it a practice to focus just a, a little set an intention every day to you know do your best to listen to what other people are saying? And what you're saying is that over time, the brain will get better and better at this because you're giving it exercise. Exactly the case. So, so what you've just described is what I'm calling neuroplasticity, that the brain rewires itself the more you practice any sequence. But this is a really important one. And it often comes up, by the way, in reviews of people at work or what people are hearing that they would do well to do better at. Yes. Well, so that was true for me in my 360, that I was dismissive, for example. So that implies a, a lack of listening. The technique that, you know, I've talked about this before on the show, but it's maybe worth repeating that Dan Klerman and Mudita Nisker, who you referenced before, the technique that they gave me, and by the way, I'll put a link in the show notes to the interview we did with them on the show, but the technique they gave me is called reflective listening, which means that not only do you train yourself to listen, but that you then train yourself to repeat back, and you reference this, repeat back the bones of what the person has said to you, sort of in a paraphrased fashion, in your own words, to repeat it back to them. And that actually having that assignment, and it's a kind of a journalistic assignment, I find forced me in a nice way to listen because I knew that I was going to I was going to want to repeat back to them what they had said. So I really listening yeah. like a reporter at a press conference. And that skill has been transformative for me. I think that's a great testimony to how practicing something can make a difference. And so when you do this, 
uh, emotional and social competence inventory, this 360, uh, you get a diagnosis of all the different areas where you might want to improve. But my advice is just pick one, one at a time. Mm. But by the way, I mentioned in passing that a lot of emotional intelligence workshops and so on don't really help. And that's because they're too short. They don't involve ongoing practice. It's the practice that someone once said, practice makes perfect. Actually, it's true that the more you do it, the more the brain changes. And so in order to get there, you need a program for emotional intelligence development that's going to help you and support you as you keep practicing and practicing. Sometimes people deal with coaches. Sometimes they do it on their own. There's the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence Online Learning Program. I hope you'll put it in your show notes, sure. which helps people do this with any of the competencies of emotional intelligence. So it's not enough to just go to, you know, if I'm if I'm lucky enough that my employer brings Danny Goleman in to, to give a <laughs> speech to at a convention. It's not enough to just go hear a great speech or to go to a workshop that somebody's putting on. These are skills you know, they're they're rewiring the brain and it takes a little while. You have to practice them in an ongoing way. <laughs> exactly. And many, many companies or organizations will offer people a chance to go to a one-day retreat, so-called, or a workshop on emotional intelligence or a two-day or to hear a talk by someone by me. I often say in my talks, you know what? This is not going to help you get better at emotional intelligence. It might motivate you to get better, but it's going to take practice. Boyatzis, who I've worked with for years, does this with his MBA students for a semester. And he finds that when he tracks them down up to seven years later in wherever it is that they're working now and has people there do a 360 on them, that actually the skill they worked on in their MBA course has stayed with them. This is, and that shows that it, neuroplasticity actually works if you work at it. Coming up, Danny Goldman talks about compassionate candor, how to give feedback, and the three kinds of empathy. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years. Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, You'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com slash deals. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, they have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. 
Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Don't forget to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. We are offering subscriptions to the 10% Happier app at a 40% discount until the end of the month. Get this deal before it ends by going to 10%.com slash 40. That's 10%, one word, all spelled out, dot com slash 40 for 40% off your subscription. We've been talking about 360 reviews. So let me ask a sort of small practical question and then a much larger practical question. The small question is, you said that you've designed an emotional and social competency inventory, which is kind of a, a 360. Is that something that people can go and, and sign up for on the web and do on their own? Or do you need to be working with like a, a coaching firm that runs the 360 for you? Both. Uh, some organizations will offer the, this particular 360 to people. But also uh, coaches can use this too. So it's possible to work with someone with this inventory. Uh, If you find a coach who has access to it, they have to get some training on how to use it. I think particularly important, Dan, and, and you brought this up, is learning how to give the feedback on the 360 in a way where it's helpful and people don't feel it's just a criticism. That's very important. Uh, You want people to stay motivated or to get motivated to do something about it, not to feel frozen about it, like, oh, my God, people think I'm an interpersonal idiot. Right. Well, I certainly thought that after reading my first 360, but (laughs) what I I was lucky, I mean, the criticism of 360 reviews is that they're often dropped on people like a daisy cutter bomb and then they're just you know they either go yeah. into denial or depression or whatever sure, sure. i had a really good coach oh, i've been on the show many times jerry colonna and i mean i worked with him i have worked with him for years and it's really helped me integrate these devastating learnings into my life but i guess the larger question for me is that most people are not going to get 360 reviews I, I recognize that but we can all ask for feedback and I'm curious what you recommend in that department, asking for feedback and then integrating it into your life. Well, you know, there are different ways to give feedback. Some of them, I think, are a little destructive. Like, maybe the most destructive is being indifferent, not giving any feedback. Mm. Sometimes people use feedback uh, in an aggressive way and give it in a way where you can't really hear the feedback. What you hear is the aggression. Uh, Sometimes people candy coat it so that you don't really feel there's anything wrong with it. I really favor compassionate candor, being honest with the other person, but caring about them and making sure they understand you're not criticizing them. You're just saying, here's an opportunity to learn to get better. And that's what a good coach does. This is another area where I've been weak. One of the criticisms in my first 360 review was um, had to do with honesty. And I read that and I was like, wait, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not a liar. But what the critique was not that I was a liar. It was that where I wasn't lying by commission, but I was lying by omission. I wasn't taking the time to sit down and give people calm, thoughtful feedback. I might snap at them, 
which is suboptimal to be a little cute, but I wouldn't actually sit down and give thoughtful feedback and guidance like a coach. And that's something I'm actually still working on because it is a hard thing to do. It takes emotional energy. You're sure. risking people getting upset at you. And so the easier path is to keep it to yourself and judge them silently. That is the easier path, but I don't think it's the most helpful path because no. then you end up not telling them anything. So if there's something someone else needs to know and that you can tell them, the question is, how can you let them know that? What is the, how do you contextualize that information for the person so they don't get defensive, so they don't get angry back, so they really hear it? And I think it's not just possible, but important to do. Well, to go back to Dan and Mudita, one of the techniques that they've given me to deliver feedback is, this is going to sound a little technical, but they call it stating your positive intention. So, and, and that can sound a little jargon-y, but it really just means telling somebody why you're going to tell them what you're about to tell them. So I might say to a team member or to my child or to a friend or my wife, hey, you know, I want to give you some feedback if you're open to it. And I just want you to know the reason why I'm doing this is because this relationship is really important to me. So I'm doing this because I'm hoping that we can work better together, live better together, et cetera. I care about you. And that usually, in my experience, opens people up to hear whatever you've got to say. Dan, I think that's very beautiful. And that reminds me of a point that I, I think is important about empathy, that there are three kinds of empathy, each of which is based in different brain circuits, actually. Uh, the first is cognitive empathy. I know how you think. I know the categories you use to talk to yourself about whatever reality it is. And that means you can be effective as a communicator because you know the language the person will understand. The, the other kind is emotional empathy, which is based in the emotional circuitry of the brain. You feel with the person. So you not only know how to put it, but you know how they feel about it once you say it, for example. But the third kind, I think, is the most important, and that's concern, caring about the other person. And what the way you put it was in that context. You said, mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you this because I care about you. This relationship matters to me. And I think that makes it so much more palatable to the person hearing it. And that third kind of empathy, I think, is the basis for not just caring and concern, it's basis for compassion. Yes. And I don't think we can have too much of it. However, there is the danger of out of too much, quote, compassion, thinking, I'm not going to bring it up because it's going to upset the person, which is not candid. So it's a combination of candor and compassion that you want. Brene Brown, whose work I admire, says clear is kind. And so even though it might be a little tough to hear, if you're clear with somebody, that truly is the kindest move. I, I would go a step beyond. I would uh, meld what she said with what you learned from Dana Medita, which is to make it clear that you're being explicit because you care. Yes. And I think that is less likely to have the person close down to yes. what you're about to say. Right, but you, if you view compassion as 
it's the most compassionate thing is not to upset the person. So you're not going to tell them all the things they're doing. That oh, are destructive. I, I disagree completely. Oh, no, the I most, know. I, I, yeah. I, I agree with you, but if, if you're, ha- if you're under the misapprehension oh. that the yeah. cle- oh, kindest okay. thing to do is not to tell them, I think clear is kind is a good antidote to that misconception. Absolutely. Clear means be candid, but I would add be caring and candid. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mentioned before that there are four parts to the book. The first is the emotional intelligence path to optimal performance. The second is emotional intelligence, the details. We've talked a little bit about that. The third is emotional intelligence, the work. Now, we've talked a little bit about doing the work of emotional intelligence. But before I move on to the fourth part of the book, I wonder if there's more to say about specifically anything coming up in your mind about the actual work we can do to get more emotionally intelligent. I'm, I'm interested in how an organization whether it's a nonprofit or a company, can create a culture that enhances or encourages emotional intelligence. And I think there are a lot of things that need to happen. One is that a leader, a prominent leader, it helps if that person will make it explicit that this matters here Hmm. in whatever language. And by the way, different organizations language this differently. As you said, they might talk about uh, leadership presence, that means being fully present, means being empathic. But it doesn't use the word empathy. It uses the word presence. So in the language of whatever the organization is, make it clear that emotional intelligence, by whatever name it goes by in your context, matters here. And then make it part of a performance review. You know, it's not just, as I said, it's not just, did you get the numbers, but how did you do it? Do people uh, love you as a leader or hate you as a leader? That matters very much. And also to provide opportunities to get better at it. And I don't mean um, having a a talk by someone like me or a uh, one-day or two-day workshop, but having a program that actually works, and and we do know what works. Hmm. And what works? What do we know? What works is supporting people to practice, but putting, getting their motivation out front first, not yours. You don't want to impose it. You don't want to say to me, you need to be a better listener and we're going to make you go to this workshop on listening. But rather, you want to find out what that person wants for themselves, what matters to them, and put the learning in that context. This is going to help you get there. And then go from there. And whatever the learning plan is that you come up with or a coach comes up with for you or a partner, you want to practice that until it becomes automatic because that's the neuroplasticity part. That means it's going to stay with you, not just, you know. The half-life of one-day seminars is astonishingly short, no matter what it is, whether it's accounting or emotional intelligence. You want to do the work that's going to make it stick. In this third part of the book, you also mentioned that emotional intelligence can help uh, reduce burnout. What's the mechanism there? Well, if you remember, I talked about competencies or emotional intelligence ability that is called emotional balance or managing disturbing emotions. It's the key to resilience. So the opposite of the sequence of burnout is you have too much to do, too little support, too little time. You're stressed out of your mind. You It happens day after day after day. The body 
has a recovery mode, parasympathetic nervous system arousal. It's when we sleep, when we have sex, the body restores itself. It's in that mode. But if you're day after day, you never get there, you get emotional exhaustion. And that's the prelude to burnout. And people often quit. It happened during COVID. A lot of nurses quit because they were burned out, for example. So the question is, what can you do to sustain yourself, no matter what the stress? And one of the things you can do is better manage disturbing emotions, strengthen relationships that you find nourishing, find private time for yourself to do the things that matter to you, that help you feel sustained yoga or meditation or exercise, whatever it may be. But build that into your day and make sure you do it. Don't skip it. It matters. Even though it looks like you're not, quote, doing something useful, you're doing something really important. Those are the kinds of things that help you recover and get and not go into that downward spiral of burnout. Coming up, Danny talks about why compassion does not lead to burnout, the future of emotional intelligence in an era of AI, artificial intelligence, and his directive to only do what is easy. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website, and they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day. Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with, with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, uh, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. There may be people listening who think, okay, you guys have been talking about empathy and compassion, and now you're talking about burnout, but if I've got too much empathy and compassion, isn't that what is going to lead me to burnout because I'm too worried about everybody else? I think that's a misunderstanding of empathy. I think you need to know that the word compassion is a little screwy in the English language. In other languages, compassion starts with yourself. It's not just about other people. It's what we now call self-compassion. 
And so that means taking care of yourself as well as other people. And it might mean having that candid conversation that we talked about earlier. Uh, it might mean standing up for your rights, being assertive about what matters to you. What's good? Maybe you need better pay. Maybe you need more time off. Maybe you need flex time. But letting that be known, not just staying quiet, that's a misunderstanding of empathy and compassion. That's uh, buying harmony at the expense of your own well-being. That's not compassion. One of the things that's helped me in this regard is understanding and that you can think about empathy strictly, and I think this is reductive, but you could think about it as feeling other people's feelings and compassion as feeling other people's feelings plus the desire to help. And when you add on the desire to help, it's ennobling. It gives you a sense of agency. And so you aren't swamped by the other person's emotions because you're doing something about it, or at least you want to. Yeah. The the Dalai Lama is a great champion of compassion. And he says that, first of all, the person who's compassionate is the first one to benefit. And science backs that up, actually. But he also says that if you're compassionate, if you're acting out of compassion, you feel self-confident. You feel strong. It's not weak. It's not, you know, a lame way of being. It's an assertive way of being at its best. Part four of the book is the future of emotional intelligence, which is very interesting. And you talk about in, in a world of artificial intelligence as opposed to emotional intelligence, as we head into the future where the robots are super empowered, that that EI will become more important in the era of AI. Can you explain? Well, no matter how AI changes the workplace, we're going to need people. We're going to need leaders. And we're going to need leaders who have emotional intelligence, who can inspire, who can guide, who can influence. I don't think that's going to go away. And by the way, AI, it's an interesting paradox. AI is basically a bunch of computer code and algorithms. That's what it comes down to. AI has no emotion. It doesn't have emotional self-awareness. It doesn't have real empathy. It can mimic empathy, maybe. It can probably read emotions from facial expressions. There's already a coding system for that. But that doesn't mean that... AI can inspire. It doesn't mean that AI can sense someone else's real feelings and then act on that. So I think uh, AI can't really replace humans at that level. Yeah, I just, I agree. It may replace humans in many ways, though. And so if we know that the one area where it really cannot replace us is true empathy and compassion, then it makes developing those skills all the more important. There's a big debate in the AI world, you know, about making AI compassionate. In other words, years ago, I think in the 40s, Isaac Asimov wrote about uh, robots. And he said every robot followed a law that they would never harm a human. And our current AI doesn't have that constraint and needs it. That worries me, actually, because what it says is that AI could be used for warfare, Mm -hmm. for really super smart killing. And that is not a pleasant prospect. But I think that compassion is, at least in 
a formal sense, not harming others, caring about others, should be part of any, any AI program. I would agree. Just back to this, the future of EI, emotional intelligence. You also write about how, you know, given that we're heading into an, a very uncertain future, some people describe our era as polycrisis, you know, with climate change, war, inequality, sure. bigotry, loose nukes, lots of crises out there. You, you argue that EI will become increasingly important. Can you say more about that? Well, I think that these human abilities will continue to matter and maybe matter more, as we said, but that emotional intelligence alone, I don't think will be enough to meet the challenges of the world that's coming and that we have sign, early signs of already. I think we need to be able to understand systems, economic systems, political systems, geological systems, ecological systems. And in order to do that, I think we also need to have a shared sense of purpose, a sense of doing better together for a greater good. That's, in other words, doing something beyond our self-interest that's for the good of everyone, for the good of humanity. And also, it's going to take a lot of creativity and innovation going into the future. I'm having a slightly different thought about what I think may be a false dichotomy between an individual working on their emotional intelligence, personal development, and big structural problems. Because you said before, EI is not going to be enough. We've got these huge structural problems. But structures are generally made by humans. Right. And so we need humans who are a notch further down the evolutionary scale, a little bit more enlightened than we were before to help us unravel some of these knots that we've tied. And in fact, that's going to be the challenge for the future, is untying those knots. It's also finding a sense of purpose, which is greater than my own self-interest. It's encouraging creativity, being receptive to innovation. Uh, it's understanding the systems that are embedded, that we're embedded in, and finding leverage points. So it's been 25 years since you wrote a landmark book, Emotional Intelligence. What criticisms have you heard in that time that you've tried to incorporate into how you talk about emotional intelligence now? Well, the biggest criticism in 95, which I think was quite justified, is that you don't have any direct data about emotional intelligence. And of course, we didn't. It was proposed in 1990 in a kind of obscure journal by Peter Salovey, who is now the president of Yale and his then graduate student, John Mayer. Now, the, the book that I wrote, Optimal, uh, I did with Kerry Churnas. He and I were co-chairs of a consortium for research on emotional intelligence in organizations. So we've harvested decades now of research, which turns out to support the concept that it does make a big difference and it matters differently than IQ. Not that IQ doesn't matter, but it's not enough. It matters enormously during school years. It predicts who's going to be like the head of the class, pretty much, if you control for how much homework you do, <laughs> how much extracurricular stuff you do. But after, when you get into the workplace, it's not such a big differentiator. It determines what level you can get a job in, but it doesn't determine whether you'll be outstanding in the job. That's where emotional intelligence starts to come into play. 
So the biggest criticism you've heard in the 25 years was, hey, there's not enough data for this. And now you feel like actually there is data. Yeah, there actually within the first five years or so of that book coming out, there were other books coming out saying, hey, there's no data for this. And they were right. (laughs) (laughs) It takes time. You know, IQ has been around for more than 100 years and there's tons of data about IQ. But now there's beginning to be a critical mass of data on emotional intelligence. That's what we harvested. So do you view this this book as kind of your last word on this subject in some ways? I hope so. Uh, I don't think I have it in me to write another book. <laughs> on, on, on this that, subject? On this subject. I may write another book, yes. Well, I know. Uh, proprietary information. Dan's right. got other books in <laughs> But this is kind of the summation of 25 years of what you've learned on this subject. Precisely. Now I'm able to go back with confidence and face off with the critique that there's no data and say, hey, there's actually very good and very strong data. So I'm curious, just to go back to where we started, you're calling for not some perpetual state of flow, which is out of most humans reach, but rather as many good days as we can put together. For you, after so many years of studying psychology and practicing meditation, what is a good day and how consistent are you at stringing them together? I could be better at having more good days, but for me, a good day, I'm a writer, basically. So if I have a day where I wrote for an hour or two, uh, that's satisfying. Uh, If I have a a day where I do something special with my wife or my partner or my family or my grandkids and kids, that's a good day. Uh, If I go for a walk with a friend, that's a good day. So I would say it's, it's both a combination of connection and doing what I love, which is writing, that makes a good day for me. And I think everybody's recipe for a good day is a little different. It's unique. It's individual. Speaking of writing, you gave me a piece of writing advice years ago that I don't even know if you'll remember saying it to me, but I really, I think about it a lot. Do the easy stuff first. Actually, what I remember saying is only do what's easy (laughs) (laughs) on any given day. Interesting. And so the idea is that if you accumulate enough wins you're creating a momentum where everything's yeah. easy rather than diving well, right into the heart. What I've found, I've done like a dozen books or so, Dan. And what I found is that if I do what comes most easily, what flows, what's optimal, if you will, what happens is I have a tapestry and then it's connecting all that within a framework that makes the book. And then at that point, that comes more easily too. It's... What I can't do is an outline that says I'm going to do A, B, then C, and D. That's, that kills me. Mm. But on a given day, I have a flash like, oh, yeah, I should say this about that. So I say this about that day. That's satisfying. Uh, and then I put it all together at the end. And that's a book. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I strike that, uh, that strikes me as really wise and not at all what I do, which is I march dutifully and militaristically and through my to-do list or whatever structure instead of Uh bouncing more gleefully and joyfully and creatively among the areas that I 
have energy and creativity to work on. It sounds like you know what to do. Yeah, well, in so many areas of my life, I know what to do. I just don't fucking do it. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> it reminds me, I remember having a conversation with Joseph Goldstein that I recorded, and so it's very funny went to listen to it, where I'm talking about productivity, and you know, and I, I talk about how I move through the day kind of lurching grimly from one item of my to-do list to the next, you know, clenched up, and he's like, hey, the good stuff, doesn't come from the clench. And then he said, that's just you being stupid and starts to laugh <laughs> in his galloping, high-pitched laugh. And, you know, because he wasn't really calling me stupid. But it is stupid to, to to do what I'm doing. And I think much smarter to do what you're calling for and what Joseph's calling for is relax a little bit. Even when you're in the middle of a tough thing, for me now, and I, I try to remind myself, I, I kind of talk to myself when I'm in the middle of a tough chapter on my next book or a tough email I'm looking to write. Okay, just do the easy stuff. Do the easy stuff. It doesn't have to be perfect yet. You can come back to it. You can go back to it tomorrow. Just do the easy stuff. And if you just do the easy stuff enough, it's all easy eventually. I, that, that was a lesson I learned for the years I toiled at the New York Times. Any, everything I wrote would be edited by at least three people. And I had to give up my sense of, oh, it has to be this way. I saw they actually were improving it. It helped to have that second look. And now writing books, I see that, okay, I'll do what's easy, but then maybe I'll punch it up later. Yes. Maybe that will be the easiest thing, easier thing on a later day. Before I let you go, can you please remind everybody of the name of your new book, and any other resources that you've put out into the world that you want people to know about? Oh, I don't know the name of my book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's, well, I know the name the of subtitle? it. What's the subtitle? Do you know the subtitle? <laughs> yes, Optimal, colon, How to Sustain Personal and Organizational Excellence Every Day. Beautiful. It was a subtitle. I wasn't sure of it. It's changed a couple times. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Always a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm lucky to count you as a friend. Thank you for coming on, Danny. My pleasure. Really, truly. Thanks again to Danny. Always great to talk to him. We have all of Danny's appearances on this podcast linked in the show notes, including his interview with Sokni Rinpoche from uh, a series we did called The Art and Science of Keeping Your Shit Together. That was a series where we brought together Buddhist scholars and respected scientists. Go check all of that out if you want more Danny Goldman. Before I let you go, a thank you and an ask. Thank you for listening. Genuinely, we would not do this. We could not do this without you. And the ask is, if two things, if you've got a second to go give us a rating or a review, that's super helpful. And go sign up for the newsletter where we sum up the learnings uh, from the week's episodes. So you've got your, your podcast TLDR right there in one email. You can sign up in the show notes. Thank you most of all to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Kevin O'Connell is our director of audio and post-production. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Alicia Mackey leads our marketing. And Tony Magyar is our director of podcasts. Finally, Nick Thorburn of Islands wrote our theme. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.